Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are taking up the epistle of James, the epistle of straw. So let me come clean from the beginning. I do not think James is an epistle of straw. And we are going to even start our discussion by clearing the way with um, some of the unfortunate heritage of our beloved reformer, Martin Luther. One thing I discovered in my work for this is that his very few passing comments early in his career have way over-determined the history of interpretation. Um, But also, for some reason, they have become so famous that I not infrequently hear people who are less specialized in Luther making comments about Luther's attitude towards James and also over-interpreting them and deriving way too much import about um, Luther himself out of those few comments. So we have a lot of um, clearing the deck to do before we get going. Yes, uh, Sarah, ground clearing operation for a proper appreciation of both Luther and James, correct? Correct. So the things I most often hear are Luther just disposed of James from the canon because he didn't like it, because it taught uh, you are saved by faith and works, not just by faith, and that Luther somehow thought he had the right to do that. Um, implicitly behind this, there is also a hermeneutical assumption about the canon of scripture that all of Paul and the five chapters of James somehow lie on the same level and you can just kind of um, like neutralize each other with them or something like that. Um so I think that's also a pretty problematic reading of both the role of Paul and James in Scripture. Um, so we'll, we'll get to how to deal with that later on. But um, first of all, Luther did not just take it upon himself because of his idiosyncratic views to ditch parts of Scripture. There is actually material substance to his critique. Okay. Yeah, I think that's right, Sarah. The The canonicity of the epistle of James uh, was in doubt for a very long time. Uh, and so Luther's expressing reservations about it is actually nothing new. In fact, it's quite patristic. Uh, I think that's the first thing to register. The comments come uh, in his uh, in his prefaces to the New Testament. Isn't that right? Right. Well, there there is an early comment in the Babylonian captivity of the church where he rejects extreme unction last rites, which is now the sacrament of healing, I think, in the post-Vatican II Catholic Church, as being grounded in James. But the critique there is not that James did something wrong, but that the use of James to call something a sacrament was misguided because Luther's understood a sacrament to mean a dominical institution that conveyed forgiveness of sins and grace, um, not uh, the application of oil, which may or may not result in a healing. And is not instituted by the Lord. Of course, you know, James doesn't say that. And then later on in the prefaces, the preface to the New Testament, then he gets into his material critique. And that's from, I think, 1522. It's really, it's really early on in his career. And what does he say there? Well, let, let, let's get into that because I, I think it's important uh, as actually preparing us to talk about James. Because, again, uh, I, I guess this is my other frustration is that when people who don't know better, talk about Luther and James, they just think he found something inconvenient and therefore ditched it or rejected it. But in fact, Luther has um, two substantial concerns. Um, And I think one is uh, 
more worthy of entertaining than the others. So let's get into it. So, so first of all, in his overall preface to the New Testament, not to James specifically, he's talking generally about the books of the Bible and their genre and what to read out of them. And in it, he actually gives very strong preference to the Gospel of John over the synoptics. And he gives very strong preference to the epistles of both Paul and Peter over against James. And that is where he calls James an epistle of straw, meaning, you know, lightweight, <laughs> doesn't, um, the fire will not burn very long if you, uh, if you light it up or something. But the, the point for him is that he is talking about what qualifies something to be an evangelical or apostolic writing. And he does not qualify it based on the personage, like Paul's letters are apostolic or evangelical because Paul was Paul, but because of the content of the message that he bears. And so he looks at the, at the epistle of James and says, well, there is very little Jesus in this book there. And indeed, you know, you read it for yourself, you will see there is nothing about Christ's life. There's nothing about Christ's passion or crucifixion. There is nothing about his resurrection in any direct format. Um, the way you do get Jesus in this book is through the um, number of sayings of Jesus that are expressed in a, you know, slightly reconfigured form in the epistle of James. So it's content of Jesus teaching, but not content of his life. And there is a great deal about God, but very little specifically about Jesus and nothing whatsoever about the Holy Spirit. So that is the course of his material critique of James' apostolic nature. And again, as you said, that was shared by the church fathers. So that's that's the first, and I think that is the more substantial and interesting question to talk about regarding James. I think Luther is at least right to raise the issue and raise some questions about James on that basis. Yeah, and I, th I think that's also true of of, of the church fathers that um, they had hesitations about its authenticity. Um, I think Jerome considered it to be synonymous—that uh, is to say, a pious forgery—and uh, I don't think it's even quoted until the time of Origen, which is in the middle of the third century. Uh, so it's a it's a book that has a kind of curious. Um, uh, origins and so forth. I, this, I've read that perhaps James, the brother of the Lord, uh, uh, published a circular sermon before his martyrdom in Jerusalem in the year 66, right on the cusp of the Jewish revolt against Rome. Uh, and James uh, was martyred, and he might have issued, he was the, you know, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and it's possible that he had put out some kind of pastoral letter about uh, admonishing uh, his uh, Jewish Christian synagogues. That, that, by the way, that word synagogue is literally used in the second chapter uh, for the uh, assemblies. Of, of So we can assume that these are assemblies of Jewish Christians uh, who have their own Jewish Christian synagogues, and that... Uh, after his martyrdom at some later date, it was taken up by an editor uh, who had far more polished Greek language and rhetorical skills and uh, uh, re, re, uh, rewritten, uh, again, as a circular kind of letter, uh, admonishing Jewish Christians to remain faithful under persecution and to keep themselves uh, pure and undefiled from the the ways of the wicked world around them, something like that. 
well, let's let's then just follow up and take up this question of authorship before we go on to Luther's other critique. So the commentary I read is by Luke Timothy Johnson, who is a really excellent New Testament scholar. And um, he, again, goes through the whole history of interpretation. And, you know, it is interesting and curious, the fact that that the letter is recognized and even quoted so late, though there are plenty, there are things that might qualify as allusions to it without being direct quotes before the time of origin. Um, but Johnson says he considers it not impossible or even implausible that it actually has a very early authorship. I guess scholarship has generally considered it to be later, but one of the main reasons for considering it to be later is reading especially chapter two as a direct attack on Paul, which means that all of Paul's letters have to be out there and widely spread for there to be a Jewish Christian blowback. And uh, as we'll get into in this other aspect of, of Luther's concern, Johnson actually doesn't think that's what's going on at all. He thinks it rather reflects both Paul and James being Jewish Christians, Paul too, who are using the same vocabulary developing in the early Jesus movement and interpreting it through the same classic Torah stories like Abraham in order to address, however, two separate concerns. He also says, um, and I found this interesting, that um, the the Palestinian Judaism was so absolutely saturated in the Greek language that there isn't actually any real um, linguistic obstacle to um, James or, you know, the a brother of the Lord, somebody living in Jesus' family circumstances to be good enough in um, Greek to at least create a strong substrate. You wouldn't even need a whole lot of editorial polishing to take it up there. I, I guess um, a lot of archaeological and linguistic research, again, over the, the course of New Testament studies have, have established that. I mean, it would be like saying people in India aren't very good in English because English doesn't come from India. Well, yes, but India has been so deeply influenced by the English presence for so long. You have people writing fabulous literature in English who have lived in India all their lives. So I think it's it's something more along those lines. And finally, he he says there are a number of, um, you know, just little allusions which may add up cumulatively to a specifically Palestinian Jewish setting. And if that's the case, then um, we're talking about a, a an entirely Jewish Christian community that is speaking internally to itself. And I, I think that's something I would really like to explore further, because that is the, I think, the, the deep-rooted difference between what James is getting at and what Paul is getting at, because Paul is going out to Gentile communities and trying to communicate the whole story with no background to people who have no reason to be expecting a Messiah. And this letter is clearly speaking to people who are so immersed in this thought world of the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, that um, you can have a different set of assumptions about what you need to say to make your message intelligible. So anyway, how does that strike you? That all adds up for me. I don't feel the need to affirm that the letter that we have was penned by James, the brother of the Lord. But I certainly think, like much of the synonymous literature, also, you know, Pauline literature like Colossians or Ephesians, for example, or the pastoral letters, uh, these are people who, who want to take up the legacy that they've inherited uh, from the apostles and Paul or James, uh, James, respectively, and carry it forward into new situations and new generations. And I think if we simply accept that that was the uh, uh, understanding of authorship 
from that period of history and time, uh, we shouldn't have a problem in seeing the, the actual canonical letter of James to represent the voice of Jewish Christianity uh, um, uh, in the New Testament, along with the little letter of Jude, I suppose, as well. Right, right. Yeah, I have to say for myself, it wouldn't it wouldn't bug me <laughs> if this was not written by James, the brother of the Lord. The, the other thing I'll just add in from Johnson, though, is he says that it doesn't actually have the usual markers of pseudonymous literature because it just says from James <laughs> to the t- 12 tribes in dispersion. And I guess, uh, generally speaking, pseudonymous literature makes um, does more of the protest too much <laughs> and tries to give its bona fides right. of why this is really James talking here. And it doesn't do that. And then if you look, I mean, there are a number of Jameses um, out there who are available. So it could have been one of the other ones, too. Incidentally, for um, English listeners, James is in English is a a long extended derivation through a whole chain of other European languages all the way back to Greek, Jacobos, Jacob. So uh, I heard now I cannot verify this, but I heard the reason why we call the letter James and not Jacob is because King James, as of the King James version, wanted his name to appear in the Bible. So he he leaned on his <laughs> translators to say James instead of Jacob. But of course, if you say the name Jacob, suddenly it seems a lot more of a Jewish Christian letter and a lot less of an English Christian letter. <laughs> Okay, well, the kings have been interfering with the church for a long time. They sure have. They sure have. At least he wasn't uh, so fond of executions. Well, he probably was, actually. I don't know. I don't know my English martyrdom history, Catholic or Protestant. Let's move on from there. So, okay, but the more substantial, I don't know actually if it is more substantial, let's say the more famous concern of Luther regarding James, and this is the one that circulates a lot more than the general paucity of Jesus and uh life and death and resurrection and lack of spirit language is chapter two, where James gets into faith and works. And I am just going to um, read out this passage from Luther. Now, this is actually in his specific preface to James, not to the whole New Testament. Um, And here are his reasons for doubt about whether it is apostolic. He says, it is flatly against St. Paul and all the rest of scripture in ascribing justification to works. And then Luther uses as a comparison how differently Paul uses Abraham as an icon of faith, whereas James uses Abraham as an icon of faith made active through works. Then secondly, Luther repeats the point from the whole New Testament preface about the general lack of discussion or teaching about Christ specifically. And he concludes with, this is a rather famous bit from Luther, all the genuine sacred books agree in this that all of them preach and inculcate Christ. That's Treiben in German. And that is the true test by which to judge all books when we see whether or not they inculcate Christ. Whatever does not teach Christ is not yet apostolic. Even though St. Peter or St. Paul does the teaching, again, whatever preaches Christ would be apostolic even if Judas, Annas, Pilate, and Herod were doing it. So again, there you see the material <laughs> content rather than the personal um Authority for Luther is the the key thing. Then he says, Luther says, it seems to him as a chaotic mess of sayings thrown together. He doesn't see any rhyme or reason to it. That, again, seems to have overdetermined a lot of much later 19th century, 20th century scholarship on James, who, I don't know, they felt the need to say that Luther was right on this passing judgment. 
Um, then Luther talks about some chronology he seems to be confusing, which James he's talking about. And then he says, in conclusion, in a word, James wanted to guard against those who relied on faith without works, but he was unequal to the task. He tries to accomplish this by harping on the law, what the apostles accomplished by stimulating people to love. Therefore, I cannot include him among the chief books, though I would not thereby prevent anyone from including or extolling him as he pleases, for there are otherwise many good sayings in him. And in fact, I should say at the very beginning of this preface, Luther says, though this epistle of St. James was rejected by the ancients, he overstates that a bit, I praise it and consider it a good book because it sets up no doctrines of men, but vigorously promulgates the law of God. So the first thing just to say is that Luther does not reject it altogether, but he doesn't make it of chief importance. And that has to do with the material absence of Christ language. And then also, but not just primarily, the teaching about faith and works, which he finally says James is unequal to, not necessarily um, teaching the wrong thing or the opposite thing. Well, yeah, and that, of course, as I'm sure listeners are by now familiar with listening to us, this goes to the heart of Luther's theology that Christ must first be donum, Latin gift, before he is exemplum, uh, Latin moral example uh, or moral uh, uh, model for us. You have to receive Christ in order to become a little Christ. Or in plain language, you can't squeeze blood out of a turnip. <laughs> and that's what Luther says that James is harping on people to keep the law uh, rather than stimulating them to love by bathing them in the love of Christ exhibited not simply in his teaching, but in his teaching which led him to his uh, death for others, his vindication by God on the third day, and his sending of the Spirit in order to inflame hearts uh, with this act of radical divine love, the Holy Spirit pouring God's love into us, uh, and so forth in Romans 5. So I guess the question is, do you think that is a fair charge against James on Luther's part? Well, I think I think only if you kind of do what we have learned not to do and uh, read uh, New Testament literature in in the abstract, as if these were systematic theological treatises that could be poised against each other. And when Luther says he totally contradicts St. Paul, uh, I think it's a verbal contradiction, but I think, in fact, James and Paul understood contextually or would simply be speaking past each other for reasons that we can get into. Yeah, I came to very much the same conclusion the more time I spent. I mean, I, yeah, I didn't just be, get converted to James recently, but it, it seems to me if you actually look at the content of what they're saying, again, the, the, the superficial verbal disagreement is striking and a little startling even, but I don't think at the root they are the, the one, I don't think they're even responding to each other. I think Johnson's proposal that they are using the same vocabulary and examples because they're both first century apostolic Jews who know Jesus and are doing first-level missionary work among Jews and Gentiles, respectively, has a lot more to do with it. Well, Paul himself entertains the Jewish Christian objection to his gospel 
when he says rhetorically, what then, shall we sin that grace may abound? May ganoito, he says, may it never be. You know, and, and so we can get into why this superficial, what we're arguing is a superficial or a semantical confusion uh, 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 is not really a material contradiction between Paul and James. Now, even if it, I just want to say in principle, there could be a material contradiction. Uh, I would like to stipulate that that's possible. And, I'm, and I wouldn't be afraid of saying it if, I, if, in fact, I thought that there was a material contradiction between uh, Paul and James. Uh, I think it's important to show how it is not really and that Luther, uh, unfortunately, overstated his case when he acknowledged that he James teaches the law of God in an excellent way, and there is much fine uh, uh, admonition, paranasis, in it, and so forth. And I think, actually, Luther, the, anti, the anti-antinomian, uh, would have to approve of that very strongly. Uh, and I think, I think that then we have to clear up why it is not actually a substantial contradiction. Right. And again, this comes from really early in his career. He has not yet had antinomian misinterpretations of his own teaching. And it, like, if you look in the index of Luther's works, there's a couple columns of places where he cites James throughout the rest of his career. So it's not like he dropped it. I think as much as anything, the responsibility lies here on fans of Luther who just got way overexcited over these couple passages, which are such a teeny tiny proportion of his entire output. I mean, there there is also some responsibility on interpreters not to make too big of a deal of it. So I would say both to those who have learned to dismiss Luther because they thought he dismissed James and to those who think they have to dismiss James because Luther once dismissed James himself. Like, let's just get over this and go back to taking James in its own right and trying to understand the letter in its own right. And I don't think we need to let Luther determine the course of James interpretation forever after. Well, of course not. Uh, You know, it's interesting. In preparation for this session, I picked up the New Oxford Annotated uh, Bible to quickly reread James, and I read the uh, the the, uh, the uh, introduction to the epistle, um, which uh, in this I don't and I don't even know who the editor is who wrote this introduction here, but just to illustrate what I what we're saying, this is how he concludes his introduction to James. Martin Luther's cavalier <laughs> assessment of James as an epistle of straw because it seemingly denigrated the Pauline doctrine of justification by faith influenced its interpretation for many years. Now, this author, him, this very editor, in his notes on the text, argues that, in fact, they're talking past each other. This is what he says. The conflict, however, is more apparent than real. For Paul, faith is primarily trust in God, a sense of the word that James also shares, but in his critique of faith, James means by it essentially the assent, intellectual assent, to ideas about God without any personal relationship or commitment to inform them. So, <laughs> this very author, 
explains to us why the contradiction between James and Paul is a matter of uh, semantics within uh, different contexts, and at the same time treats Luther's argument of exactly, well, more or less the same case as Cavalier. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think what we need to do, we, we definitely need to, to sort out this faith and wor- works things. But I think, as I said, the more substantial concern is why is there so little um, about Jesus <laughs> in both the name and in the details of his life and nothing about the spirit and nothing about baptism, nothing about Holy Communion. And I mean, I think that is more deeply rooted in his concern. And then it's almost for, for Luther, it would be inevitable that you would get justification by faith wrong if you don't have any, you know, you haven't been driving Christ, tribing Christum, right, all along. So I, I would like to put forward um, a cavalier theory of my own. No, it's not cavalier <laughs> at all. But um, when I actually uh, uh, appeared on this other lectionary podcast with my friend John Drury, and we were we worked on James 5 together, and as I was going back through it, I suddenly had this, this thesis developed. So let me run it by you, Dad. So Japan, where I live now, is what is called a high-context culture and language, which means because Japan has been so homogenous for so long, it's still like 98.5% Japanese ethnically within the nation's territory. It was, you know, closed for a full 200 years before finally the West demanded it opened up in the 1860s. Its language is extremely difficult and inaccessible. Um, In fact, let me give a little hint to hackers out there. Japanese websites are notoriously insecure, but it's because the language is so hard to understand that nobody tries to hack them from the outside because you'd have to actually (laughs) figure out what the heck is going on, okay? And within the way the Japanese language functions, it is compared to a language like English, so nonspecific, it is really hard to figure out for, again, for an outsider learning it, who is who is the subject of the verb? What is the object of the verb? Um, what is being implied? And this is what's called high context language and culture because everybody understands what's going on so well, you don't actually have to specify anything. And in fact, to specify to the degree that we would naturally do in English comes off as extremely assertive, even aggressive. Now, by contrast, a language like English is very low context. It's probably one of the reasons it has succeeded widely as a world language. I mean, even compared to like, say, Spanish or Slovak, where you can leave out the pronouns, in English, you never leave out the pronouns unless you're just like slurring really fast. Had to get out of here quick, you know, but proper English, you always use pronouns. You always have verbs. It's very clear who is the subject, who is the object, who is the indirect object, um, are... Um, tenses are extremely specific. You have to state everything out. And even just communicatively, our our culture, uh, American culture especially, is so oriented towards plain and clear communication. Um, even, you know, if we abuse that in propaganda or whatever, it, it's like at a linguistic and cultural level, there is this need for high clarity. And that is very typical of mixed cultures where you have a lot of people groups crashing into each other who don't share a culture, who don't share a context, and therefore really have to explain themselves to prevent, you know, basically aggression from breaking out between the two different groups. So, Using that in mind, I was just thinking, here's the difference between James and Paul. If James is 
you know, the brother of the Lord or very close to the center of the original apostolic circle, that means everybody knew Jesus or knew somebody who knew Jesus. Everybody has lived in either Judea or Galilee their whole life. Everybody is Jewish. Everybody is keeping the same law. Everybody is having the same conversations. Everyone gets the same illusions. In order to be eloquent and effective, you can't overstate your case. A lot of the power of things like poetry and literature is they're understating it and you pick up on the illusion. And that's what makes it so satisfying. You're like, ah, I know what he's, he's, you know, hinting at there, right? Paul, by contrast, is, you know, obviously he is immersed in the world of Judaism and he does spend time with Jewish Christian communities, but most of his work and most of how we know him is in his low context Gentile or mixed church settings where he has to interpret between Jewish and Gentile Christians what the heck is going on and why they are seeing things differently and, and you know, how do these Gentile people get grafted into Israel's story or he's in an entirely Gentile setting like Galatians. And, you know, everything has to be explained just from the get-go. You cannot be elusive because nobody would get your allusions. So in that sense, if I go back and reread James, what what I hear in it is a book that knows that everybody already knows about Jesus' death and resurrection. You don't have to say it. That's not the burden of the book. You can be very, very faint and subtle and people still get it. And they are implicitly putting it in the context of this larger story. But it isn't the burden of this book to tell the story because everybody already knows. Yeah, I like that hypothesis, Sarah. That that makes an awful lot of sense to me that uh, James, the brother of the Lord, uh, wrote a circular sermon that was later uh, adapted to the uh, after the time of the uh, R- Roman defeat of the rebellion, and the Jewish Christian communities were scattered into diaspora as the uh, this letter now begins, and so this is the voice of James uh, speaking to the Jewish Christian community that's been scattered abroad, and he's concerned, the letter is concerned that the integrity of uh, faith and life, faith and action, uh, is being jeopardized by the uh, immersion now in a, in, a, in a world that is indifferent, if not hostile, uh, uh, to, to the Jewish Christian uh, faith and, and, and uh, ethos and so forth. And so, the the writing style is still like you said not direct and confrontational or explicit uh, other than uh, but rather elusive in terms of what we would call the dogmatic groundings of its paranasis all right good well let's proceed then on the assumption that James and his listeners knew perfectly well all of the charisma regarding Jesus and um, did not need to have it restated for the purposes of this letter. This letter is after something different. And maybe if I could put it in one word, I would say this letter is about integrity, um, the wholeness of the, the person before God and before one another, rather than being... Um, split or maybe, let's say, um, giving in to the split that every sin- sinful soul experiences in itself, but um, orienting towards integrity as a Christian witness. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think it's important for us to talk about that. But I have just two little comments yet on the uh, um, 
dogmatics of James uh, that is there implicitly uh, or elusively. And one is uh, that James indeed talks a great deal about faith. The letter opens with a discussion of faith. The letter concludes with the prayer of faith. And there are discussions of faith scattered all through the letter. And it's not just that James is denying justification by intellectual assent to revealed truths. Uh, James is also positively teaching about what faith is and how faith operates and so forth and so on. And I think when you grasp that James is not at all hostile to faith as if works could replace faith, he's rather saying that faith is living and real in the work that it does, which is not very different from Paul talking about the what matters is faith operative in love. So uh, that would be one point. The second point is that the epistle of James talks repeatedly and in very interesting ways about God the Father. And we have to bear in mind that this is almost distinctively Christian usage. Uh, it's true, of course, in Judaism, there were occasional references to God as Father, but it's more of a metaphor than as a name. James is using the uh, language of Father with regard to God as a proper name, and he's making dogmatic uh, assertions that that God the Father is ever generous, the giver of all good things, never grudging, always willing to answer those who ask, uh, and that in him uh, there is pure light and no shadow of or turning of darkness. So God is reliable, consistent, uh, steadfast. And that goes back to the Hebrew idea of what faith is. The verb aman, which means to make firm, in the hifil, uh, in the Hebrew uh, aspect of the hifil, means to make oneself firm. So what faith is, is making oneself firm in the reliable, unchanging, steadfast, ever-generous God the Father. And that's, uh, so I just wanted to bring that out, that there is a, a dogmatics in the background of the letter to James. And it has very much to do, if you want to put it this way, to the Jesus's own proclamation of God as our Heavenly Father. Mm. Yeah, I like that very much. In fact, I think you could say James is not maybe the most obvious source book for Christology, but it is a good source for patrology. And if we actually have a robust Trinitarian doctrine, then um, God and Father are not simple equivalents because God is God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. So that means we actually have to talk about the Father qua Father and and um, not just uh, collapse that into a distinction that then we have have to, you know, somehow figure out how to add son and spirit to. And implicitly, if there's a father, then there has to be a son. So that, and there's no 
And we should add, there's no variants of James that omit the references to Jesus that are there. And several of the references to Lord probably are meaning Jesus, but maybe the fact that it's not so clear whether it's Jesus the Son or God the Father is part of the point and part of the long-term source for Trinitarian theology. Absolutely, right. All right, well, let's go through. There's only five chapters, so let's just, um, in our, our time left, spend a little bit in each of them. So in in this first one, um, as you mentioned, God as generous giver is such a, a recurring theme of this book. Um, Johnson's commentary really helped me see how how deeply that is the, the structure of the argument being made about the nature of, of God, our Father, in this is is. God's endless giving. So we could even take a, another good Lutheran step to say that, in fact, there's no discussion of faith or works until we have first received the grace of God, which is his donum, his His givingness, uh, giving nature throughout. And then in chapter one, that is set in opposition to human nature, which is fundamentally covetous. Again, like this to me is, is why Luther should have, and, and other writings did appreciate James, because it is such a let's say, Augustinian uh, incisive insight into the nature of human desire and covetous and how corrupting it is. Absolutely. But you know, the source for both Augustine and James is the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, And I think this is something that's been uh, not realized sufficiently in analysis of the doctrine of desire, covetousness, concupiscence, variety of vocables we can use for this. But the admonition throughout the book of Deuteronomy is to cling to the Lord your God. That Hebrew verb, to cling, to hold on to, to grasp, to make yourself firm in the one who is reliable, right? So that clinging to God uh, with your whole heart and mind and so forth, Deuteronomy is constantly uh, talking about the fact that human desire can be alienated, captivated by unclean powers, by false gods, by idols, and so forth, and why it is important, therefore, to fix desire uh, onto the Lord and to cling to him. And, you know, that's what Luther picks up in uh, in his discussion of the first commandment in the large catechism. I tell you what is really your God is whatever your heart clings to in time of trouble, right? He picks up the same motif of desire latching on to what is believed to be steadfast, reliable, uh, in in difficulty and need. Yeah, and I, I can't help but think that Luther's decision to stand by the Western enumeration of the Ten Commandments, which is namely to drop the graven image one and to double the covetous coveting ones at the end. And by the way, both are justifiable from the text of Exodus. You cannot just decide from there. <laughs> they're, they're, those are both options. Um, but I, I can't help but think that it, it's partly because Luther interprets the commandments through the lens of the New Testament that part of it is the critique in James of covetous and corrupted desire. And that's why actually 20% of, of his uh, Ten, the Ten Commandments in his catechism are dealing with corrupted desire, which then, of course, makes the, the golden circle that that clasps the first commandment again with having the Lord your God as the primary object of desire. Right, exactly. 
Okay. Um, one other thing I just want to draw out of chapter one is this line. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. America, can you hear me? <laughs> the anger of man <laughs> does not produce the righteousness of God. You know, if that could just like be uh, emblazoned on everyone's forehead, I think we would be moving in the right direction. So. <laughs> That's uh, interesting, Sarah. I just preached last Sunday, supply preached, and uh, uh, that was uh, kind of how I opened up my sermon with how we're all struggling against angry feelings uh, these days. And in fact, there's a lot to be angry about. But boy, oh boy, it your anger, as James warns us, can overtake you and turn you into the very thing that you loathe. Yeah. And I think that's the point. He's not saying don't be angry or there's nothing to be angry about. He's just making the observation the anger of man does not actually produce the righteousness of God. Some other strategy is needed. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Okay, okay let's, let's go, go on. on. Chapter two? Chapter two, yeah. Why don't you take it away there? Okay. Um, there's a very interesting discussion here at the beginning of chapter two about uh, partiality. And this interesting Greek word, which means basically uh, preferring, I mean, the etymology is something like uh, regarding the face, regarding faces, um, uh, uh, and the the root of the the verb is prosopone, face or or public appearance of somebody, and there's a, a a very interesting discussion about the synagogue where someone where a wealthy person comes in and is shown all sorts of deference and given a seat of honor, uh, and the poor people in the church are told to stand up and get out of the way uh, in deference to the rich one. And boy, James just excoriates that uh, 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 being a respecter of persons that way in the archaic sense of the word, uh, showing deference to social status and wealth and so forth and so on. And just like all the prophets of Israel, the letter of James in general uh, is 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 very much uh, into God's preferential option for the poor in power. I mean, I mean that's a phrase from liberation theology, but it's really scriptural. The God of the Bible sides with the widows and the orphans and all who are poor in power and protects them against the callous indifference, if not exploitation, of those who are rich and wealthy in this life. And James warns against uh, this uh, relying on your worldly riches, which will be taken away from you in a flash. Uh, so opposition to partiality is deeply rooted uh, in Torah and in the prophets. Uh, so you have to live, if you're going to live under the what James calls the law of liberty. That's a very interesting expression too, isn't it? Does he mean the Jesus interpreted Torah is the charter of freedom? It could be that's what he means. I'm not sure. What do you think? I don't know. It, it startles me too there. Um, and then he goes on to say, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So there, there's something going on there where he's both appealing to, 
to Torah, and I don't want to say like transcend it because that sounds so supersessionistic, but I, I think it's more like the the reorientation of, of what is at the core of it. Oh, that's what it is. It's Leviticus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself and be holy as I am holy. That is the, the you know, determining, interpreting factor for all of these things. Um, and I, I suppose in that respect, then the liberty comes of no longer being uh bowing down before the rich and the powerful because there's no liberty in that at all but i don't know it's it's very it's provocative without deeply explaining itself i think probably we would have to look for a parallel to the gospel of matthew and it's it's uh, uh, uh what's the right way to put this it's a reinterpretation of the torah and the sermon on the mount and elsewhere uh, in the light of, uh, again, just like James, in the light of the abundant generosity of God, our Heavenly Father, uh, who gives generously and sees in secret and knows in secret and so forth and so on. But I think this mercy triumphs over judgment is exactly the uh, thrust of of, a, of Torah uh, reconfigured uh, in the light of the Christ event, uh, even though this is alluded to, not made explicit. Yeah, though clearly what it's not doing is excusing your toadying to the rich person or the rich person's oppression. Like, it doesn't mean, oh, there'll be mercy for the rich person. You couldn't help it. You were trapped by your riches. <laughs> you know, like, that's that's not what it's, it's headed towards. It's calling to that rich person, show mercy to the the widow and orphan that that is the greatest call of of the law of God and I think that has to do with the whole question of integrity so for also in this section for James he makes the point that you you can't just keep part of the law you have to keep the whole law it's all one cloth and that is also a a theme in Jesus teaching and and Paul's teaching of the um, integrity of the thing I, I actually just listened to um. Uh, other listeners might know this. There is a, a special podcast series from Christianity Today about the rise and fall of Mars Hill, which was the church in Seattle pastored by Mark Driscoll, and that had a meteoric rise and then just a, a devastating crash with uh, just unbelievable carnage. It's definitely, Dad, what you call toxic Christianity. Um, and um, uh, there was a great deal of soul searching um, among the evangelical Christians who were interviewed, basically like, how did we let it go this long? We all saw the warning signs and we didn't stop it. And I think it has something to do with this is that you they saw all the good stuff that Mark Driscoll did. And there was genuine good stuff. There's no denying that. But there was also all this bad stuff. And basically what happened is like, well, because of all the good stuff, because of all the people he reaches and all the, you know, charity he donates and all the people he takes care of, therefore we have to or we can excuse and ignore and cover up all the bad stuff that he does. And I think what James is, is showing is that it doesn't work that way. Good stuff does not excuse bad stuff or you, you don't get a pass at your bad stuff because you've done lots of good stuff. It, it's all one cloth. So as, as James will say, uh, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, sorry, you're still a sinner. You don't get a pass on the murder just because you were faithful <laughs> to your spouse. And I think there is a kind of temptation, especially with someone, I mean, this is really dangerous with someone who's so charismatic as Mark Driscoll is, was, um, 
is to there there's an internal motivation on the part of the followers to excuse the bad behavior in the light of the good. And I think something that's so important about James is pushing back against that and saying, no, you don't get a pass. It all has to be kept. And I think it connects, Sarah, with the previous discussion of respecting persons or showing deference. And I used the expression poor in power and I, then by the opposite of that would be people who are rich in power, like I suppose Mark Driscoll was, charismatic, right, and so forth. And, you know, we're all drawn to people who are rich in power because we want to piggyback on their power and we want to harness their power and we want to use their power. Now, needless to say, uh, that can be okay within limits, <laughs> You know, and that's exactly James' point. It's got to be bridled. It cannot be out of control and it cannot be treated as a good in and of itself. Right. And I think that also raises the question for all followers. Why do you corrupt your leaders by letting them get away with it? There is a, you know, there's there's more blame on the side of the powerful, but the followers are not innocent if they are, you know, enabling, to use that classic language. That That's that's another uh, allusion to contemporary American politics. Let's go on. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. Um, and then this is where James talks about um, Abraham and Rahab. It's interesting. He uses specifically ah. the both Adelphos and Adelphia. It's rare actually in the New Testament to get the literal word for sister, not just having it logically included in the brothers. Um, and uh, apparently uh, the, the, seems a reason to mention her, who's kind of an obscure figure, but dad, I know you're interested because she's in the book of Joshua, is because in rabbinic tradition, Abraham and Rahab were both considered paragons of hospitality. And that's why they're held up here, is, is they're not respecting persons, but welcoming those in need. And of course, a little later, James will go on to talk about Abraham believing God and showing his faith in his works and so forth. And he lifts up Rahab the same way. What's interesting, of course, is that Rahab is a Canaanite, not an Israelite. Canaan, uh, Rahab uh, is a prostitute, not a, 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 a virtuous woman. I, yeah, matron, right? It's something like that. Uh, and actually, in the book of Joshua, as I pointed out in my commentary, Rahab is a better confessor of the Lord and his saving deeds than the spies that she sets about hiding and, and, and sending back to Joshua uh, 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 on the way to the conquest of her, her, her city, Jericho. Uh, so I think that here again, these very biblical allusions testify that James is not at all an opponent or enemy of faith. He simply wants to insist upon the integrity, as you said earlier, that faith uh, become operative in deeds, in deeds of love, as both Abraham and Rahab illustrate. Yeah, and I think we, we can't go into this deeply now, but I think we should just signal that there is a separate 16th century and ultimately ecumenical discussion about being justified by faith and being justified by faith and works or by faith formed by love or something like that. And this is, obviously it has ties to what's going on in James and Paul, but that is a different kind of discussion. Um, so I, I think 
it for the sake of understanding James in his own right, we should keep out the Lutheran Catholic battle that took place many, many centuries after that. Well, you're absolutely right about that. We shouldn't anachronize, and that that leads to uh, utterly fixed positions in which there's no need, a possibility of a better understanding and forward progress. I totally agree with that. But there is one thing I want to point out here in, in verses 9, 19 through 26, where you have the famous discussion uh, that you, uh, uh, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder in terror <laughs> when they, at the thought, right? And, and so clearly what James is attacking is some view of faith as mere intellectual assent to a dogma about God, in this case, a very important dogma for Judaism, uh, the Shema, the oneness of God, right? Uh, but if all that means is, yeah, yeah, if there is a God, God is one. Yeah, I, I, I buy that. I can believe that God, God is one. It has no other effect on my life, but yeah, I'll go along with that, right? That kind of thing, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, that's what the Lutheran Reformation explicitly rejects as uh, non-justifying belief, as fides historica, merely historical faith. I believe that Jesus existed in Galilee. I believe that Jesus was the Messiah way back then, something like that. And it's it's not the faith which it conforms one to Jesus Christ and thus transforms one's uh, whole being. Uh, and that includes, of course, one's being in activity. Yeah, I think you could even push it farther and say that for James, it's not even assent. It's just like acknowledgement of a bloody obvious fact. Like, I don't have to assent to the fact that the sun rises in the morning. It's just there. I see it, you know. And it, it seems that even for the demons, you know, they they see that. They know that. They don't have to even assent to it because it's the unfortunate fact of their demonic existence, that there is a God. And in that respect, they think there's a parallel to what Paul is doing in Romans 1. He says, everybody knows there's a God, you know, like, so what? You know, it's a starting point, but it doesn't actually, you know, neither for Paul, neither is that understood as faith. So, yeah, it, it's just not the same. What what James is critiquing is you is the it's using the same word, but it's not the same thing that Paul positively defines later in Romans. Exactly. And, you know, in Luther's own highly polemical context, you know, we should point out that in his translations of Romans 3, he said, we hold that a human being is justified by faith. And in German, Luther added the particle alone. We hold that a human being is justified by faith. That's Paul. And in his translation, Luther adds the word alone, justified by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. That was his way of making explicit what it means to say apart from the works of the law. And Luther was attacked for translating it that way, and uh, that he was importing his own ideas into what Paul actually said. And the attackers of Luther then could quote uh, James chapter 2, verse, uh, uh, what is that, 26 or something, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. <laughs> That's right there literally uh, 
pistis monon, I think it is in Greek or something like that. So that and that's the polemical context of the 16th century. So let's go back to James. Yeah. Well, also just interesting to note that James uses the word erga for works, or Johnson likes to translate that as deeds to take it out of that polemical context. He doesn't say the works of the law, which is Paul's polemical phrase for attempting to split the difference between um, specific Jewish covenantal salvation and Jesus' mediated salvation. But if you remove the ending of the law, then actually Paul also uses the very generic term erga, works or deeds, all over the place, and of course commends and enjoins them upon Christians all over the place. So again, there, there's a different also point of attack. The way I, I think is maybe the most useful for me for looking at this is that both Paul and James are opposing those who would game the system of God's grace. Ah. And so for Paul, the gaming that he sees is you can do the external works, but God is the one who judges the heart. And unless the heart in that deep Old Testament sense, the kidneys or even the bowels are turned towards God and have received his gifts, you can have the most beautiful exterior. It doesn't matter. You're a whitewashed tomb. That's not the real deal. For James, the gaming of the system is when you say, of course I believe that God is one. Of course I believe that Jesus is my savior. Oh, my poor brother, you're so cold and suffering. Go in peace. The Lord will take care of you. I'm not responsible for that, right? So they're both seeing exploitations of the nature of both God's goodness in the gospel and God's law commanded upon people to live well together and are finding ways to exploit it. But they're dealing with two different problems of exploitation or gaming the system. I like that, Sarah. Gaming the system. That's a that's a good way of putting it. Exactly. And of course, that also means you ha always have to be contextual because the system can be gained in all sorts of different ways. <laughs> yes. And and you have to you have to it's a, pastoral ministry is an art, not a science. And you have to pay attention to what is actually going on in the dynamics of Christian congregational life or of the life of individual Christians in the world. Yeah, and that's hard work. Let's just say it. It's really hard work. <laughs> yeah, it is. Okay, well, let's continue on. Um, chapter three is mostly about um, speech. I really like the opening verse. Not many of you should become teachers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And uh, listeners... Ah! <laughs> <laughs> listeners Woe have heard me... me. Yeah, right, right. Woe is we. <laughs> Woe is us. Listeners will have heard me before defend the double standard where clergy are concerned. Of course there should be a double standard for people who claim to be speaking from God. We should be held to a higher account and there should be a greater cost if we mislead people. I think that's totally legit and I think James is entirely right to say this. And yes, anyone who claims to speak to God for God will be judged with greater strictness. If you don't want to be judged with greater strictness, don't claim to be speaking for God. Well, I'm afraid you're so right about this that part of the motive for lowering the standards for clergy uh, behavior and deportment uh, is just this. I don't want to be responsible for speaking for God. I just want to be, you know, a service worker alongside other service workers. Uh, you know, this is a real bugaboo of mine. It goes way back to the beginning of the ELCA when I was at a uh, listening to people event on the doctrine of the ministry. 
and some dude from California went to the microphone right after me and, and said, hey, my name's Joe. And when I when I visit people in the hospital, I don't say I'm Pastor Jojo. I say I'm Joe. I'm just a regular guy like everybody else. What's your name? What are you into? You know, and just this kind of glad handling uh, attempt to to, to uh, um, deflate the office of the pastoral ministry so that we do not come under stricter judgment. That is a particular bugaboo of mine. Uh, and, um, so anyway, I, you know, end of rant. Well, I would just say there's nothing that was ever stopping Joe from visiting people in the hospital anyway, just as Joe. So why do you have to go and become a pastor? Cause he wanted to get paid and have a pension from the ELCA, I suppose. <laughs> or, you know, wanted the authority without the accountability. Okay. Joe, wherever you are, I hope you've seen the error of your ways. Okay. Um, I, I I don't think we'll go too long into this, though. I mean, it is a wonderful analysis, again, of everything that's wrong with public speech nowadays. And again, we've we've talked about what our new social media does. It gives uh, unbridling to all tongues and zero accountability because you can be anonymous or just part of a mob and not be accountable for your speech. So again, if you don't like what's happening on Twitter, read James 3 and then delete your account. But I think it's also a really good <laughs> example of the... Um, the connection between James' high-context implied doctrine and the ethics that he is enjoining on his community. Because he talks about the tongue and says, With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with the tongue, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So those are really powerful statements about God and humanity, first of all. And then he's setting up the uh, contrast of no integrity where the same little organ of the tongue is using to do in two entirely opposite things. But in fact, if you really have God as your Lord and Father, then you cannot curse someone made in his likeness. Well, there's a thought. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I, I don't think I can improve on James 3. I think you should. everybody should just read it again and take it to heart. Do you have any other comments you wanted to make? No, I think we might want to move along to chapter 4, which has a, a few more interesting things in it. All right. Well, what did you see in there? What do you want to share? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Wow. <laughs> now, again, there is the statement of Jewish apocalyptic theology uh, in a practical, moral, ethical, paranetic uh, nutshell or in a rhetorical question. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, of course, you, we have to take the word world here, according, understanding that in the New Testament, the word cosmos has a double meaning. It can mean either, it can refer either to the material creation, humanity included, that is the good gift of God, and it can also refer to this good gift of God uh, turned away from God into darkness and death, uh, and all the ways in which the epistle of James has analyzed uh, desire run amuck, leading into fighting, quarreling, and war, and so forth. So the uh, double, with that clarification in mind of the ambiguity of the word world, uh, uh, J uh, James is definitely addressing world in the second sense. You adulterous people, 
<laughs> Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Right? So he's talking, I, I think here, the if we can kind of uh, parse out or, or, or tease out, rather, a context for this epistle, it has something to do with the author's anxiety that the Jewish Christian community has been dispersed. It's no longer living in Jerusalem in the security of a homogenous cultural context in which Jude, a Jewish reverence for Torah and Torah-keeping uh, is, is the cultural norm. And the congregations may be tempted to accommodate or acclimate uh, to the pagan darkness around them. I think that's probably uh, what we're seeing going on here in chapter four. Yeah, actually, you know, the, the part that precedes that really struck me The the chapter begins, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And again, that is he has such a profound understanding of covetousness and disordered desire as the source of everything. And what is striking to me about it is because this is a very closed, high-context Jewish Christian community. So you would think it would be really easy to be sectarian and assume that we are the good people. But James goes absolutely against that and says, it is precisely through your covetous and disordered desires that the world is entering into to this holy place and corrupting it. So it isn't actually an absolute, we're good and they're bad, but we also are bad because our desires are out of order. And that is where, you know, our front line of attack is, is getting our own desires under control so we do not end up murdering each other. Yep. Uh, and now, again, that's practically a Pauline, Augustinian, Lutheran understanding of human sinfulness, isn't it? <laughs> without, without true faith in the, the Lord and Father, uh, the God of uh, lights and so forth, the generous giver, uh, that vacuum in our souls is filled by covetous desire that leads into wrath and conflict and so forth. I think it's also important to point out here that... Uh, that James is maintaining two things that in a contemporary church culture are often pitted against each other. He is both attacking the lovelessness of the well-to-do uh, for their lack of material care for the brother or sister in front of their face who is in need and saying, you know, that uh, how sinful it is to be greedy and not sharing and caring uh, for the poor in your midst, and at the same time saying, be satisfied with God and heaven as your treasure, and stop being so greedy for material things, you know, and I think in a contemporary church life, you pick up on one or the other, you know, but you don't see them in their unity, that the capacity to care for the poor and the needy is precisely in those whose riches are in God, in adhering to God, in 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 uh, James' kind of faith in God as the generous giver. Uh, and those who 
live their lives knowing that everything they have they've received as a gift uh, in that consciousness then are quick and ready to give to others in need right and that also explains why god doesn't god is infinitely generous but doesn't just give you everything you ask for because god isn't a gumball machine that you put in a dime and you get something in return every time he says you know you you don't have because you don't ask so that's like okay well i'll ask but you ask and don't get because you want it for the wrong reasons so expect that your your prayers will be better answered when you actually have um started asking for the right things because your passions are finally in order again it makes me wonder how many of us preachers could actually say James chapter 5, verse 1 to our congregations. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the <laughs> miseries that are coming upon you. <laughs> uh, well, you should try it next time you supply preach, because then you can run. <laughs> I know. Is that in the lectionary? I doubt it. <laughs> probably not. Probably not. But it is the just it is the beatitude of Jesus, according to Luke. Woe to you who are rich. You have had your reward. True. True. I think that's a woe-itude, not a beatitude. <laughs> no. So, okay. A woe-itude. Yeah. To finish up chapter five, again, a, a final, um, you know, a critique of the rich, a commendation of patience, suffering, and steadfastness. The name of the Lord is mentioned twice. And then I have to say, I love the ending of James because... Typical Lutheran note coming here. It is about joyful exchanges. And so what happens when a person is sick? They are to summon the elders of the church. It's actually the first time ecclesia is mentioned in this letter. And then James says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And um, in good Greek fashion, the verb save is the uh, sozo. It's the, the double one that can mean both healing and saving saving in Greek. And then the Lord will raise him up is a gere. That's one of the verbs used for Jesus' own resurrection. But it can also mean just literal raising something from a, a lying position to a standing position. And I don't doubt that the potential for the double meaning is part of the point and that the Lord appears as the active agent in the act of raising. And so I know this is Tragic in a way, because this verse has often been used to make prosperity promises that, you know, as long as you have enough faith or, you know, the, your church has enough faith, you'll never get sick, you'll never die. And that is a horrible corruption of what this is about. But what it is commending is the truly joyful exchange between members of the church who pray for one another and love one another and care for one another. And the healing and the raising may not come in this life, but the salvation and the resurrection will certainly come in the next. And I think it's really important to keep that layered meaning there, but put that in the larger context of this is the nature of the right ecclesial community, this exchange between one another. Right. And the, the text continues uh, after the healing of the body by the resurrection with the statement, and if the sick one has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Uh, or is that rather the one who prays uh, will be forgiven? Let's see. 
No, it's, it's, it's the sick person. But I think it, it's it's implicitly the sick person will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for an, one another that you may be healed. So it's it's inclusive of everybody. I mean, again, this is not an explicit reference to Jesus healing, but I think immediately of Mark 2, where, you know, it's the friends who bring the sick man, the paralytic to Jesus. Jesus sees their faith and he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees grumble. Then Jesus says, rise up and take your mat and walk. I mean, this sounds to me like uh, uh, an ethical reprocessing of that uh, very early gospel healing story and forgiving story. And a, very good. And probably quite possibly that's true. Uh, uh, the little bit of a, of a excursus I want to make here, I do this every chance I get. The service of the word for healing the service of the word for healing. This would be a tremendous practice for Christian communities, particularly in outreach to their parish neighborhoods, to open the church doors in the middle of the week and invite the community to come in with their prayers for healing. Performing that service, doing what James chapter 5, tells us to do, I think that is the way in which uh, traditional uh, liturgical congregations can actually open themselves up to their neighborhoods spiritually to evangelize and catechize in a culturally appropriate way. Right. And, you know, prayer for healing is something you can give to people who are not catechized or baptized yet. There is no concern or limitation exactly. about that. Right, right. That's Jesus's ministry begins with healing and forgiveness of sins. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I think open communion is a cheap solution that tries to actually avoid the real encounter. And I think the healing offer, it's it's going to be... Um, much less controlled, <laughs> and there's going to be a lot more risk involved. I think it's a much more appropriate evangelical activity precisely because it makes the evangelizers more vulnerable and doesn't just make the, the visitors um, the vulnerable ones who just come and receive something that they don't understand and have not been you know, introduced to in any way. Absolutely. Uh, one last thing, and this is how the whole letter ends and it ends with one more extraordinary joyful exchange and i've i've altered the translation a bit a bit here because i'm i'm always frustrated when translations do not respect passive versus active verbs and i think it really makes a difference so my brothers if anyone among you has been deceived from the truth and someone turns him back let him know that the turner back of the sinner from his deception will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Wow. Talk about being a little Christ to your neighbor. Like this is just like one rank below what Jesus himself does. And it's obviously not meant to like be usurping the place of Christ or God. It's saying that Christ is so truly present among you. And the power of this communal exchange in the church is so extraordinary that you can actually turn somebody around who's going the wrong way and he will be saved and his sins will be forgiven. That is like, that's what it's at stake in having a church community is being able to do this for one another. Well, that makes me think of our podcast last season on Teresa Morgan's book about uh, how faith reciprocates or, or, or circulates oh, right, right. 
through the whole community, including the community included into the triune life, united with the Son by the Spirit to live before God the Father, and so forth, and how mutual acts of trust circulate. And in this case that you've just mentioned, uh, even reach out to grasp one who has strayed from the truth and to bring her or him back to the uh, fold. Boy, isn't that all what we need too? <laughs> Not just to do, but to have done to us. That I, I mean, I just think that this whole this whole letter leads up to this. This this is ultimately what an an intact community of integrity that is rooted in the infinite generosity of God can actually do in this broken, fallen, and painful world. Yes, that's exactly right. But for that, we need pastors, especially congregational leaders who understand their ministry, the art of shepherding a caring community of Christ's people, uh, uh, nurturing it, sustaining it, uh, growing it, reaching out with it uh, to include newcomers into it uh, and uh, to sponsor uh, the works of love and to give the pastor's who are leading these communities enough space and time for their own study and enrichment uh, so that they can actually be the uh, genuine practical theologians and teachers. That's what the letter of James says, teachers of their communities. All right, folks, you heard it. Go do it. And now we're going to take a massive swerve off to the left, or is it to the right? Or is it a synthesis of the two? Next time on the show, Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.